Dotnet Rocks episode 663 with guest Brian Lagunas. Recorded live Tuesday, May 10th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. Hey, you know, I'm in America, he's in Canada. Yes. And uh, you were all just in Nepal. Walking, I was just in Nepal. Walking amongst the yak patties. Well, yeah, we we funny thing happens when you get to altitude, right? Mo- pretty much the whole time we were up in the I just want to say that you don't get this on any other .net podcast. <laughs> so when you hang out above <laughs> the tree line above 10,000 feet, there's so little bacteria that stuff just doesn't decay. You have to put your toilet paper in a burn bag. That's great. Thanks. You, you can't flush it because uh, it just won't ever go away. So next time uh, you're thinking of listening to .NET Rocks while you're eating dinner, think twice. There you go. Did I mention the squatter toilets? No. No? Please don't. Okay, I will. All right, that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> Always an adventure with you, Richard. I had a really great time. Very interesting. But, you know, I also realize I've done this a bunch of times and I take a bunch of things for experience yeah. for, you know... Not a big deal that most people, I think, would be somewhat more uncomfortable with. Yeah. It's the pleasures of traveling abroad. Hey, let's get into Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> Today, I thought I would talk about, you know, P-Link. Which oh, you're about. a little linkish lately, I've I'm a little noticed. linkish. Yeah. A little linkish. I like P-Link. So there's a class in .NET 4 called uh, Ordered Parallel Query of T-Source. Hmm. And that represents a sorted parallel sequence. In other words... It's a query that executes in parallel and returns a sorted list according to a key. So even though it may execute out of order, that's right. It'll return in order. Isn't that neat? I like it. It's just one of those little nice features that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to deal with. Yes. Awesome. Anytime I don't have to spin up a thread object, I'm happy. Uh, yeah, wasn't that uh, Stephen Taub's line? If you say create thread, you failed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many better ways to do things. So many better ways, and P-Link's one of them. P-Link, know it, learn it, love it. System dot link dot ordered parallel query of T source. It's all good. Yeah. So what's up, Richard? Hey, remember that show we did with Pat Hines, our yeah. sort of disaster recovery for devs? Yep. Well, it kicked off a huge pile of comments. People were very interested. I always like it when we sort of go off the edge. Yeah. Of topics and people really jump all over it. So let me read you one of the comments from it. Okay. It's from uh, Eric Campidoglio. Uh, Richard and Carl, thank you for making such a great podcast. Your voices have been a valuable companion to me on my daily commute for almost eight years. Wow. How old are you? Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the discussion with Patrick Hines about disaster recovery. I also have to thank Patrick for sharing his great story about the engineer who almost invalidated hours of work by involuntarily unplugging a server during a probably too enthusiastic high five. Oops. Yeah, that was a good one. 
I wanted to point out that implementing automatic database failover in an application sometimes comes for free, such as in the case with SQL Server 2005 and 2008 mirroring. Yeah. Uh, If you're using one of the SQL Server native drivers to connect to the database, all you have to do in this case to get seamless failover is, in fact, specify the name of the mirror server in the connection string using the failover partner keyword, and the driver will take care of the rest. In case of failure of the primary database server, all active connections will automatically be redirected to the mirror without the application ever noticing it. I agree that this is limited to database mirroring, but it's something to be aware of when evaluating your hot failover options. You can look it up on TechNet. Thanks for your great work. You make a long commute possible. Awesome. That's from Eric Campagdolio in Malmo, Sweden, home Malmö. of Ordev. Yeah. Uh, okay, Enrico. It's not as automatic as you might think. There's still going to be timeout problems. You're still going to have queries that barf. There are problems with this. Queries that we're currently executing when the mirror failover all fail. Don't believe it. They fail. You have to clean it up. There is no code-free solution. Database mirroring has other issues, which is a whole other show. And if we're going to do it, we'll bring Paul Randall on, which would be very silly. That would be silly. But he definitely knows mirroring backwards and forwards. It, we but, mean silly in a good way. Silly in a good way. Yeah, we'd be silly. Yeah, but it in you know mirroring has its limitations as opposed to clustering. They're two different things, but that's fine. It's all good. Thanks for pointing it out. I appreciate it. But believe me, when I tell you we've done this a million different ways, there's always a need for at least a little recovery code, just a little bit to say, hey, try mm-hmm. that query again. Mm-hmm. Nothing is for free. But that's not going to stop me from sending you a mug. Yeah. So a mug to Sweden. And if you've got questions, comments, concerns, Pieces of topics that we didn't bring up fully. Or flames. Or flames. Heck, hey, tell us when we suck. Entertain us. Yeah. We we don't hold back. So why should you? Write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. Put it right into the show that you care about. We mm-hmm. may read it and you'll get a mug. And give us a way to get in touch with you also. That would help. Well, Eric, Enrico did a, the correct thing and properly logged into Discus, so I've got his Twitter feed, so I'll be sending him a message right away. Fantasmic. And uh, before we get started, uh, I just want to mention that our friends at Infusion Development in New York City are still constantly looking for talent if you are looking for a change of scene in your job and you like New York or London or Toronto, or where else are they? They're in Dubai. Dubai. And they're also now in Poland. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah. So if you're interested in change of scene, let me know. Send me an email, carlfranklins.net, and I'll hook you up with them. Uh, Richard, this is going to be a very interesting show because Brian Lagunas is here. Brian is the lead software engineer and software solutions architect for a steel manufacturing company in Boise, Idaho. He's also a technical contributor for Pluralsight and the author of the Extended WPF Toolkit Project on CodePlex, which we'll be talking about this hour. He's been developing professionally for over 10 years and specializes in enterprise application development using a variety of Microsoft technologies, but he focuses on WPF and Silverlight. He can be found speaking at local user groups such as the Boise.net Developer User Group and the Boise Software Developers Group, and he presents annually at Boise Code Camp and Tech Fest. He blogs on elegant code and can be heard spreading the XAML goodness through various webcasts, including our own. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. So, Brian, what is the extended WPF Toolkit? 
The extended WPF toolkit is a collection of controls and components and utilities that are made, made, out, made available outside the uh, Microsoft WPF toolkit. Okay. Bunch of goodness that uh, is tacked on by the community, not by Microsoft. Because there was stuff missing in the WPF toolkit, you thought? Yes, there's, there's actually quite a few things missing from the uh, Microsoft WPF toolkit. And I believe their last release wasn't, was the past February of 2010. So it's been a while since this even had some attention. Wow. So my project's whole purpose was to help fill that gap between what is currently available and what should be there. Okay, and when you say missing, you really mean stuff you wish was there that isn't. Correct. Things that may exist in the Silverlight Toolkit, which I actually have one control that I ported over from the Silverlight Toolkit, which is the Busy Indicator, uh, okay. which never made it into the WPF Toolkit. I see. So give us a laundry list of the things that we can find in here. Well, I can simply name off the controls. There's just okay. 21 awesome controls in there. We have the Busy Indicator. Yep. A Button Spinner. Button Spinner. Calculator. Sure. A Calculator Up-Down Control. A Calculator Up-Down Control, meaning up-down number controls? Yeah, it's a numerical control, which has a calculator drop-down built into it. Okay. But also provides some button spinners to increment and decrement the value as well. Cool. Now, do those also uh, increment and decrement with large values if you hold down the mouse and scroll up or down? So are you talking about it incrementally increasing the increment value? Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't do that because there's actually an increment property that you set. Mm -hmm. And although that was a feature request by a, uh, by a user or consumer of the toolkit, I consider that that feature would override the initial purpose of the increment property, so yeah. I decided not to implement that feature. I've seen this uh, UI behavior before where on a number spinner, if you hold it down, it naturally increments at a certain rate. But if you then, holding down the mouse and you have clicked on the button, move the mouse up, it really spins up, you know, sort of adds some, some juice to it. Right. Now, the way I, I look at this is actually uh, a friend of mine actually put this a really good way. Is if you think about a, a clock, right, your alarm clock, mm. you know, you have no way to enter the value. Right. Right? So it makes sense to where when you're holding down a button, the value incrementally speeds up and gets faster and increases right. by larger values. Right. But when you have options to put your cursor in a text box and enter the value, that's much faster than sitting there and holding down that, you know, that button until you get there, which you may wind up passing and have to go backwards, spin backwards as well. So it's just more efficient to, to enter the value if you're going to take well, that if route. You, if you have a spinner, that's what it's for, though, right? Because you don't want to type the number. Right. Well, I guess it's, uh, you know, pick your poison, right? Yeah, which, true. It, and this right. is what makes it tough about developing controls. It's... I have to find this balance between, right. you know, what I I feel how it should work, right. but yet meet the goals or meet some of the features that other people would want to have in the control. Yep, yep. Yeah, and also it must be really difficult to deal with all kinds of evil input because, you know, yes. input is evil. There, there are tons of evil input, and... Uh, We'll talk about that in a minute. I do sure. want to continue on with the, the yeah, controls please. that are in there. Please. 
So we just finished up with the calculator up down. We have a child window, and I want to clarify that this child window is different than the one you would find in the Silverlight Toolkit, mm-hmm. and it's actually not even close to being the same thing. Okay. So a child window in the extended WPF Toolkit is basically a modal content control, which can actually be placed over sections of a view or with over you know, other content control. So it's not an actual window element that pops up. Hmm. Okay, so Just, it gives you a lot more control on, you know, the way you compose your view, and you can actually, you know, show these child windows over these different sections of your view individually. Does and that mean... totally lock out those areas. Yeah, does that mean that if you've got a composite window, let's say, with four or five sections in it, you can sort of highlight one section and just make that section of it um, active and everything else, you know, sort of like a, a transparent piece of glass with a cutout in it, if you think yeah. of it that way? Yeah, basically the child, the modal window would show on top of that area, and it goes further than that, so it will show a modal background over that area that's supposed to be locked out, mm-hmm. and the child window will not be able to be dragged outside those boundaries as well. Okay, and what's on that child window is the only thing that has focus. Correct. Yeah, all right. Okay, we also have a uh, color canvas, which is basically a color editor that has a canvas with your slider for your RGB values and your alpha transparency values. Mm -hmm. We have a color picker, which is combined with the color canvas control, but also provides... uh, the standard 142, I think it is, uh, available colors mm-hmm. from the uh, systems.colors namespace, uh, but also provides uh, you the ability to, you know, provide your own color palettes. It has a recent colors collection, so every time you choose another color, it's nice. added to that. And it's you can data bind to any of this, so it makes it really helpful for managing any types of uh, color applications or when you need to use colors. Yeah. Uh, we have a date time picker. And this is basically, think of the calendar control, a date picker, except now you can pick the time as well. Right. And this is actually a control that's composed of other controls in the toolkit. The number spinner, for example. Correct. So we have the uh, date time up-down. So I took a completely different approach with this control. Normally when you think of a a date time control, you think of a date time picker, right? A drop-down box. You have a calendar, you pick the date, you know, things like that. Well, this control is a lot different. This control actually uses uh, the button spinner uh, methodology of you can increment with either your mouse wheel or use your buttons to increment and decrement date time values as well as manually enter them in with the keyboard. And it looks like you just select what piece of the date time you want to increment or decrement. It Correct. highlights yes. and then the spinner applies to that piece. Correct. Basically, you can think of if you had a date time that's formatted in the long date time format, mm. you know, you have your Thursday, March 23rd, or whatever it is, you select ind- individual pieces of that date time, and you can incrementally or, you know, decrement those values independently. Nice. And it does support many different types of formats. It has, I believe, nine standard formats, which come from the, the date time info. And then you can also specify your own custom formats as well and provide a custom format string. Mm. We have a uh, decimal up-down, a double up-down, and an integer up-down. 
Now, a little history behind these controls is they used to just be one. They used to just have what's called a numeric up-down control. Mm. But through data binding and, you know, you start uh, binding to these different value types, nullables and ints and doubles and decimals, and it got hard to guess or determine what the user's trying to do with what data type. Yeah. And you start throwing in the ability to format these values, like currency and percent and things like that. It, it became a real pain to try to manage that. So I made the decision to get rid of the numeric up-down control and just separate them out into their own uh, more specific controls of what they're, they're supposed to deal with, decimals, mm. doubles, integers. and it, The controls are more stable, and it's a lot easier to maintain. Cool. Okay. We also have a magnifier control, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. It's basically this little magnifying glass that allows you to magnify any part of your application. So I imagine it's a piece of cake to, you know, hold down a key, for example, and then move the mouse around and you see a circular magnification of what's underneath it as you yes. move. Yes, it can be circular or you can provide your own template to define what that looks like. Yeah, nice. So we have a mask text box. That's a standard you should have in any toolkit. Absolutely. And I was completely surprised that Microsoft didn't provide one to you by default. So that was one of the first ones that went in. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight Analytics Framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem, but what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight Analytics Framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at telerik.com silverlight. And, hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash Telerik. I remember we, uh, when I worked at Crescent Software way back in the day, Visual Basic 1.0, one of the tools that we had in our package, Quick Pack Professional, was a masked text control. And we had one, you know, for dates. We had the masks all sort of predefined. Um but, you know, dates, phone numbers, whatever. So you just type in there in inside the template and, you know, the, the ancillary characters fill in. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a have. very important control. And well, I think one of the most common ones besides the text box, I, I was just, I couldn't believe it wasn't included in the Microsoft uh, toolkit. Yeah. So we also have a message box. Now, you may be thinking, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. We already have a message box, right? Message box show. Well, yeah, you do, but there's a problem with it. It's not XAML-fied, right? I can't define a style for it and have every message box in my application, no matter where I call it from, look like my application or style like my application. Right. So this one is actually a XAML-fied uh, message box, which allows you to define those styles and say your app.xaml, and now anytime you show that message box throughout your application, they're all going to look the same. Nice. Okay, we have a uh, property grid. Now, this one's in beta. Uh, I'm still working on it. But it's a pure native WPF property grid control. Mm. It, it basically is going to mimic 
uh, Visual Studio's property grid. Nice. Uh, it, it's it's ready for basic use right now, but anything past that is not ready for. Wow, it looks great. Yeah, but it, it's it's pretty functional for now. I'm still working on some more editors for it and the ability to uh, define your own custom editor. Mm. You know, maybe you built this awesome control that you want to be able to use for date times. Well, you'll be able to specify, uh, hey, for every date time, use this control. Or for any property named this, use this control. Great. See, uh, we have a rich text box. Now, the rich text box is derived from Microsoft's rich text box, but it provides a text property in which you can data bind to. Oh. So, Whoa. yeah, this was a huge problem for me uh, in my applications is I needed a rich text box where I can data bind to a, a, a property on my object. Right. I didn't now, have to do all this, you know, coding and workarounds to create a document and then bind to a document, and it was just a hassle. Like, so I created this to, you know, relieve that pain. But during this process, I also implemented the concept of what's called an iText formatter, because realizing there's more formats than just RTF. Mm-hmm. So by implementing the iText formatter interface, you can actually say, hey, Rich Text Box, I want you to use this format. And you can format the text any way you want by intercepting these calls to getting text and setting the text. So if you wanted to do stuff with uh, emoticons or, you know, icons, mm-hmm. whatever, you're doing a chat software, you can actually have your own text parser control how that rich text box is interpreting your text. Wow, great. Now, the text property that you bind to, does that contain just text or does that contain the formatting too? It contains the formatting too. It's just in a string representation. I see. Awesome. Right. Then we have what's called the rich text box format bar. Oh. And, and if you've ever been in Word 2007 and above, you know if you highlight a word, you'll get this little formatting uh, you know, toolbar or toolbox that kind of pops up. You can change your font and colors and sizes and all that. Well, that's the same thing except it's built for you now. And you can attach it to any rich text box. It doesn't even have to be the WPF are the extended WPF Toolkit's rich text box. It mm-hmm. can be Microsoft's rich text box. Mm-hmm. So you get that contextual menu there. Nice. You also have a, uh, a split button control. You know, that's exactly what it sounds like. Except you can actually put any content you want inside the split dropdown. Yeah, what is, what is a split button? So a split button is basically made up of two parts. You'll have an action button, which is just a button, right? You click it, a command executes or a click event occurs. Okay. Then to the right of that, you also have a drop-down button. So okay. you click this, and a drop-down opens up with something in it, right? And you can put whatever you want in there. Whatever you want in there. Uh, the ones I've seen when I was researching on creating one, they all had, by default, it looked like a menu. Yeah. You know, and you click it, and some menu action occurs. Well, you know, I didn't necessarily agree with that, and I wasn't going to use it that way. So I made it a content control to where you can place any content you want in there. Okay, great. Okay, now we have a, a time picker control, which mimics what the Silverlight Toolkit time picker does. It's just built differently. Okay, built for WPF. Yeah, it's built for WPF. Uh, it's not the same code. It's not one that's ported over. It's written completely different because it actually uses uh, 
you know, the up-down controls and things like that that are already built, so it's composed of other elements within the toolkit. Okay. And then we have another very, very popular control, and I can't believe how popular this control is. It's the watermark text box. Ah, so you can have some sort of default static text message in the box before you, like, type your name here or something. Exactly. And I had no idea when I created that of how badly that was needed and the kind of feedback I'm getting. You know, thank you for creating this. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It It was the easiest control to make. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's by far one of the most popular. And every control, every input control uses that watermark text box. So every control I've listed that you input text, like the date, time, up, downs, time pickers, they all use a watermark. So they all get that feature. By the way, I just want to, you know, you say you had, uh, you didn't believe the response. There are four reviews on CodePlex on this, and they're all five stars. And let me just read them. Great work. Bravo, 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 yelling in all caps. The second one, this is the most useful WPF add-on I have encountered so far. Great work. Thank you so much. The third one says, excellent work. Great controls with complete documentation. Very good reactivity. Code easily readable. The Microsoft Award is deserved. And the fourth one says, great work. Your DLL saved me a lot of time. So, wow, that's that's awesome. So, Brian, how many of these controls are going to get picked up and stuck in the regular toolkit at some point? You know, I don't know. And who's, who's to say they ever will? You know, so, so uh, far, nothing, they, they, or Microsoft builds their own version of these controls and you actually will deprecate them out? Yeah, well, you know, it really depends on how these evolve over time. Sure. And that's something I've really noticed is initially when the color picker was created, and I use the color picker uh, as an example, Initially, when I created it, it was very basic. All it was was a color canvas with some RGB sliders. That's it. Right. But it was released into the wild. People started using it, and they're like, man, my users are really tired of trying to find the same color. It's really difficult. So, okay. So I got feedback saying the advanced picker wasn't really needed. So, it, you know, enter the, the new color palette approach. You know, you create a color palette, and they can pick from... Uh, blocks, right? Here's a little color block. You select it, and boom, your color selected. Okay, great. Well, now, that's awesome. You people love it, but now they need the advanced back, right? They need the, the are occasions where you need to have an advanced color picker with the canvas and the sliders. Right. So now you add an advanced mode, and you put that back in there. But it, over time, these things just evolve, and slowly more features get added as people start using them and saying, hey, this would be cool if it can do this. Yeah, it sounds like you're just indulging your control whimsy. That sounds great. I mean, I love that stuff. Sure. love building controls. Yeah, and what's funny is, you know, I'm the only contributor on here, and this this toolkit basically started, you know, as a selfish need because I needed a control, right? Right. I needed a rich text box, and I needed a busy indicator. So I created them, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I'll put on CodePlex because someone else might find this useful. And I find myself needing a couple more controls and a couple more. And then people start suggesting controls. And all of a sudden, this simple thing that only had two or three controls in it has just evolved in over 21 controls and over 21,000 downloads. And it's just really taken off. Interesting. I mean, do you want other contributors to it? Well, I would really like, you know, some contributors, some other contributors. But it's just difficult to find people who can really dedicate the time. And even myself. You know, I've been really uh, busy at work lately, so you know, having a day job really sucks sometimes when you're trying to have a <laughs> project. Yep. 
It sucks until you want to eat. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Put so, food on your family. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you know, you've only been, you've been working on this for less than a year. I, yeah, I try to do a good job at documenting controls. You know, as things change and evolve, it's hard to keep them updated. But yeah, it, it is hard to find um, contributors, and you know, I don't, I don't want to put it a bad way, but qualified contributors, right? Right. I'm all for people wanting to learn and you know things like that. That's why I do what I do. That's why I present. I'm I'm out there teaching people WPF, Silverlight, you know, XAML technologies. I want to help the community. I'm a community guy. But when I'm what I'm looking for in a contributor is someone who is somewhat qualified to contribute. You know, good maintainable code, uh, dedicated, kind of has the same motivation. You know, self motivated that I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah, interesting challenge to it. But and I realize you've done all of this in less than a year. Yes, less than a year. So I've had, I'm on my fourth release now. The very first release was September of uh, 2010. And it started out with three controls. Wow. And now we are, my last release was, what, April 7th? I think the week before Mix, the weekend, the Friday before Mix at Open Source Fest, I released 1.4, and now it has uh, 21 controls in it. So I've, I've really been hitting hard. Tell me, Brian, are there any gotchas with any of these controls, things that people will have to watch out for, or things you want to save people some time right up front that if they think it's this, you know, it's got to work a little bit differently, save you some time? Yes, there are a couple of gotchas. The first gotcha really doesn't have to do with the control toolkit itself, but it has to do with when you download DLLs from the web and what oh, your yeah. uh, operating system tries to do, right? Yeah. It blocks that assembly. So someone I add a reference to the assembly and, you know, Visual Studio won't be able to load it. It's going to say, oh, I can't find it. Right. Well, the reason is you've got to go select properties and unblock the assembly because your operating system is putting certain permissions and restricting access to it. I find the easiest way to do that is to unlock or unblock the zip file before you unzip it. Then you only have to unblock once. And then oh. everything inside the zip file is unblocked. Well, there you go. Yeah. That'd, that'd probably work even better. Although there is just one assembly in the uh, download. <laughs> all right. So, and another gotcha, you know, I see it all the time, is these controls have a value property. Right, all the input controls. We're talking, you know, the uh, math text box, the integer up down, decimal, all those up down controls. They all have what's called a value property, which is separate from the text. Mm. The value property is what you want a data bind to. You don't want a data bind to the text, or it's not going to work. Okay, and there's a reason for that. So, I'll use the math text box as an example. Now, let's say my underlying data source is an integer. Well, most math text box you bind to only accept a string, right? Mm. You're formatting a string. Well, this you can actually say, hey, I'm going to bind to an integer, and I'm going to put this mask on it. Now, the text in the, in the math text box is going to be that masked value. Right. So if it was a currency, it was going to have a dollar sign next to it, and then the numbers dot whatever decimal places. So now we have two different values we're looking at. We have the text, the formatted text representation, and then we have the underlying value, which is still whatever data type it is, if it's a decimal or an integer or whatever it is. So they're two separate things. So that's why there's two different properties, because your underlying data type is going to be different 
than what's formatted visually. So just remember, whenever you're data binding these controls, data bind to the value property. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Are any of these controls um, sealed classes so that they can't be uh, extended? Uh, no, they're, they're all public. Great. I'm, I mean, it's open source as well, so you can, I mean, it's on Coplex, mm-hmm. so you can download the source, and if there were any that you needed, I know there might be some utility classes or converters that are internal, mm-hmm. but only because I didn't think people would use them. Yeah. You know, so uh, there's some converters that are internal, but if you felt you could use those in other places, we'd download the source and make them public. Very cool. Nice. So what's, uh, what's next? You know, you, you must have a, a to-do list that's a mile long. Well, I do, and what's funny is a lot of the requests I get are not coming from the issue tracker on the CodePlex site. I don't understand it. All my requests are really coming through Twitter, or if people just email me out of the blue, or they'll just see me and say, hey, what about this? So there are a couple things. One, I need to get that property grid going. Uh, that's a pretty complex, involved, controlled. I got a lot of work left on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm tossing around the idea of doing a wizard control. Ah, nice. Now, this wizard, <laughs> I've seen lots of implementations of wizard and WPF, and they're all based on the navigation framework, right? Well, the wizard I, I would build would not be based on the, na- the navigation framework. It'd be more of a, an items control that you could place on, on any control or any element as content. So... Yeah, it's going to be a little different. Uh, that's probably the next big control. Uh, then we have simple controls like a drop-down button. Yeah. Which honestly, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to put that in there because it's just so easy to make. Hmm. But then again, it might save someone, you know, 30 minutes of making it. And it's just, you know. So is the wizard a one that is requested the most? Yes, I do have a lot of uh, requests for a wizard. Do you ever find people like sending an email saying, uh, will you please write me a control that does this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do my homework that, for no, me. I get that all the time. Yeah, I know. Can you do my homework for me? Yeah. <laughs> I have to write a control. <laughs> or better yet, you get the one, I downloaded your source, I made all these changes to it, but now it doesn't work. Yeah. Why? Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> that's another one. Oh, that's you know, awesome. That's all- Oh, I, I try to be nice about it, and sometimes I do try to help them out just yeah. because that's how I am. Sure. If I don't think it would take too much time because you know, I do have a day job, a family, and yep. you know, I'm pretty busy, but I try to help as much as I can yep. where it makes sense and try to let down uh, other requests that may seem ridiculous to me down easy. Yeah. But it's interesting that... that- that your project's even necessary. Is it Microsoft just not building WPF controls? Well, there's just so many things to do, I think. You know, well, there are a lot to do. You know, 
I don't know, you could kind of put a little bit on this Microsoft shoulders, right? I don't know if they were in a hurry to get things out. Well, they also leave things for third-party tool vendors to do. I mean, you know, Telerik has a huge suite of controls. There's a, there's other free stuff that's out there as well. You yeah, know, there are no, vendors. I, th- I think it's one of the bread and butters for Microsoft are these third-party vendors, and I think that's why they leave a lot of yeah. the, you know, these controls out. Although there are a few that you just scratch your head and say, this seems like a standard control. Where's this one at? Yeah. Like the mass text box. Like the mass text box. That's yeah. one of those head scratchers. Like, okay, we overlooked that one, didn't we? I don't know. We never, we never had that in in Windows Forms. You know, there's that, one in Windows Forms. Wait a minute. What am I talking about? Visual Basic. I'm talking about before Windows Forms. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm old. Getting old, man. <laughs> Are you talking about VBXs? Talking about what VBXs you're talking and OCXs. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, but it still doesn't feel like we've gotten back to the productivity that we were shown in VB way back when of just picking up controls and dropping them on a surface and and building things. Well, we were building simple apps then. Yeah, back then it was more. Uh, rad. I started it back in the VB six, and so back then it was it was rad back then, right? Yeah, I we- dropped some controls on a form, and I am up and running, and my business. Loves me because Man, I am kicking out applications that work. We were happy if we got the data in the access database to show up on a form with a button that scrolled through it. Man, that was success. Right. You know, now, now we've got so much more complexity. That's the real issue. You know, it's that the bar was lower back then. Yeah, now expectations are set high. But then again, you look back then, you're building these applications. Well, they ask for a change. Well, yeah. now what? Yeah, right. Well, that's not going to happen because I just threw this stuff together and barely got it to work. Yeah, it's all behind my buttons. Yeah, it's all behind my buttons. Change? What are you talking yeah, about? You can't change. That's the way you get. <laughs> How about I build you a new one? Yeah, I'll build that? you a new one. We'll do it in <laughs> C++ this time. That ought to be better. Yeah. Yeah. So with this, you know, with, with the more complex, less rad uh, platforms like XAML, uh, you know, you do have more flexibility you know, we start introducing all these patterns like MVVM, and you get frameworks like Prism for building your composite applications, and, you know, you do add a, a level of complexity, but you, you just got to ask yourself what's important, right? The, the future longevity of this application, or get it out as fast as possible and hope they don't ask for a change. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the great booby trap, right? Now you get caught into overbuilding everything. Just build them what they ask for and deal with the consequences later. Exactly. And uh, I'm in the construction engineering realm, right? I, that's all I've been doing. All my thick clients I've ever built have been some type of construction process or engineering platform of some type. And we have to be really careful to avoid that type of trap. We, we really have to look to planning out our application on what might happen because that might, it will happen. Right. I, you know, I've seen it tons of times. Brian, your documentation looks great. I mean, I know somebody said that, but I just went looking a little bit here. Man, it looks like it looks very complete and very good with examples and screenshots. I appreciate that. And the funny thing is, is I hate doing documentation. <laughs> yeah, I can't stand it, but I understand it's a necessity. And if I want adoption of my toolkit, I have to provide it. You know, and the hard part is keeping it up to date because. As I discover, oh, I took a wrong approach, or 
this changed or I added new features. I need to remember to go back and update the documentation. Yeah. I mean, and if you go through there, there's a couple that still aren't documented very well, like the child window. I think I have a note in there that says, hey, this documentation will be updated someday, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I do at least provide a screenshot and some code snippets, but it's, it's just real tough. There's just so much to do. And, you know, another big request is theming. Know, getting theming implemented into my toolkit and now and is that so that you can pick up the themes of the controls that you're in well it's so you can pick up the theme from your operating system yeah yeah so oh, from the operating arrow, system i get an arrow theme or oh you know, that I, I thought you meant the styles well it, it is styles right it is styles but these styles change based on the theme of your operating system but I thought the the style of a WPF control was set, you know, the cascade by the style of the parent, and all that stuff is just there available to you. No. Well, so the way it works when you when you build a custom control library, you get the themes folder that's created for you. Okay, and in the themes folder, you have a required file called your generic.xaml. Okay, this is your think of it as your base uh, definition of the styles for your controls, okay? Mm. So if you don't do anything else, you don't add anything else, doesn't matter what the user is running as far as theming for their application goes, they're all going to look the same, right? Yeah. So if I'm running uh, some type of the black blend theme of, or something like that, yeah. my controls will never look that way. So what you can do is start implementing what's called theming. And I can create these themes these separate resource dictionaries that target uh, particular theme names, right? And there's a naming convention, right? So I can say, hey, I want a, this normal theme. You know, I want to target. This is what all my controls are going to look like for the uh, normal theme or the royal theme or whatever the case may be, you know, in the case of XP. Mm. And if someone's running XP and they turn on that royal theme, now all my controls are going to switch to that royal theme to match that. Right. Yeah, but now you're talking about changing every control in the suite so far. Well, not necessarily. You don't have to change the control, but yes. Yeah, changing the look, you know, the color, the borders, things like that. Yeah, and that's that's fairly easy to do in one place. Right. So it's a little tricky, though, when you start designing for theming. It's harder than I initially thought it was going to be. You know, when you design a control, I'm just, I'm just putting these controls together to make them work. But yeah. now I'm looking at theming like, oh, man, i got to kind of change the way I'm doing this. i got to yeah. use more dynamic resources. Right. i got to start, you know, creating these resource locator helper classes and, you know, things like that. So yeah, it's a little trickier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, that it does make sense. You have to have a little logic in there. It's not as simple as just applying a style. Right, especially, you don't, you know, when you create resources... You want to try to, to minimize the amount of uh, memory you're taking up, right? So if mm. you have common resources you're using, you don't want to keep creating instances of those for every control. Right. I use this same static resource of background color. You know, every time I define that somewhere, I'm creating a new instance of that. So you want to create a shared dictionary, right? You want to create one instance of this and use it everywhere. That would be ideal. So these are the things you got to think about when you start trying to do theming. Yeah. I think I start using dynamic resources. 
which they take a little more memory, but they allow you to just, you know, switch out a particular resource at runtime. So what were some of the other challenges that you uh, had to overcome, or did you? Was it just straight, pure joy? Well, it wasn't always pure joy. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say there were a lot of challenges. It's just uh, I'm surprised at some of the things I see from the community, from a, a small, very small uh, group of people of, they think the world revolves around their project and the things, the audacity of some people of requests or their attitude towards me yeah. for not getting something out fast enough or, yeah, yeah. you know, they'll you know, use derogatory terms because something doesn't work the way they want it to work or whatever the case may be. Right. Do you ever tell them you give them their money back? <laughs> yeah, if only I had a million dollars for every download, right? Yeah. <laughs> But so, I mean, dealing with that in a uh, in a way that doesn't cause friction can be challenging because, yeah. you know, you don't want to be the, whenever someone comes at me like that, I, I try not to come that way at them as well. I yeah. try to keep it civil and level-headed, you know. Yeah, here's a, here's a tip, folks. You'll get better results if you uh, say something nice. Yeah. Yeah, that'll go a long way. Yeah. Yeah, beating up a contributor that's doing their work for free, not a good not idea. Not a good idea. Yeah, so basically uh, when that comes up, I just say any of the sources available, you're more than welcome to download it and modify it to fit your needs, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, I think that's that's one of the uh, bigger headaches yeah. that I, I deal with. And then you get the personal emails and it's like, oh, come on. Right, right. You know, so... But I, I try to remain transparent, so I'm not going to hide my email address or anything. You know, I, I try to be print transparent to the community and help out where I can. Can't let that stuff get to you, man. Yeah, yeah, I don't. That's good. So, uh, so wouldn't can we expect the next version? Speaking of demanding customers. Yeah. Well, if you would have asked me right after mix, I would have told you in about three more months. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh huh. But that's not going to happen. Okay. You know, my my schedule's kind of been put on hold, and if. I mean, you can even look at the, my check-ins lately. You'll see they dramatically slowed down from a couple check-ins every day to I think I had one this week. Would you uh, welcome contributors, listeners who were who would say, "Man, I can help this guy out. Let me uh, oh, see what I can do." Most definitely. Okay. I mean, if they're interested, you know, hit me up on Twitter at Brian Lagunas, or you know, contact me through the Codeplex site. I mean, if they if they're willing and have the motivation. And uh, the qualifications, I'm more than happy to take on some contributors. That's great. Well, Brian, thank you very much for doing this, and thanks for your continued work and support. And, um, hey, thanks for telling our audience all about it. Well, thanks for uh, giving me the stage to tell your audience about it. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. That's why we're here, man. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, 
at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a guitar.